Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Dea, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Dea Oat Cream Blend. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, this is uh, a We Have Ways of Making You Talk special. I'm here with my pal, Mike Nyberg, Professor Mike Nyberg, I should say, who um, you have an incredibly grand title, don't you? Because you're Director of War Studies Chair at of War the studies. U.S. Army War College at Carlisle, Pennsylvania. All true, all true. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty impressive, I've got to say. And I love this place because I go to Carlisle quite a lot because um, everyone should know that this is this is one of the, one of the U.S. archives that is well-trod by people like me, um, and indeed you, of course, as well, Mike. And um, there you have all the German foreign studies, which mm-hmm. is this incredible program, isn't it, that was done after World War II with these kind of, sort of mid to high ranking German commanders, admittedly most of them army, there's a few Luftwaffe, but most of them army, mm-hmm. um, and just grilling them about every aspect of the war. I mean, it's an incredible series, isn't it? It's amazing. And sometimes their cells are being bugged and they don't know it. So they'll say one thing to the interrogators, then say something else, and it's all being recorded. So it's a wonderful insight into, into the mindset at the end of World War II. Yeah, it really is. And 
also there's lots of kind of oral history programs mm -hmm. and projects and stuff like that. And we're we're you, sort you of the, uh, the archive of the U.S. Army, so we have uh, not only uh, papers and archives, but we have generals when they don't know what to do with their libraries, they come to right. us, and it, it really is a phenomenal facility. Yeah, it really is, and everyone's incredibly helpful there, and you go there and there's these vast desks that you can sit to, and there's a kind of, sort of that lovely kind of hushed tone you get in kind of yeah. any reading rooms and... Yeah. You know, it's it's always very, it's very good. So I'm going there with my pal Peter Caddick Adams next week, um, after, straight after this, because I should say that we are uh, we're, we're recording this in the absolutely amazing <laughs> boardroom here at the Higgins Hotel. And the Higgins Hotel is the kind of endlessly expanding National World War II Museum. And the National World War II Museum here in New Orleans really is, it kind of sort of holds the flame alive, doesn't it, for the kind Absolutely. of sort of cultural heritage of World War II here in the USA. Absolutely, and it's gone from what I first saw it in 2006 in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina uh, into something that was struggling, as New Orleans was, into this just phenomenal facility in this great neighborhood. So it's, it's quite something to watch the way that it's grown. Yeah, it sure is. And and one of the things that's j literally just opened a couple of weeks ago is this new hotel. And it's pretty luxury. It's gorgeous. It? Yeah, it's gorgeous. And, and I should describe. So, okay, so the boardroom is everything you would expect from a kind of sort of big kind of American boardroom. It's a <laughs> massive TV screen on one wall. I mean, you know, that is absolutely ginormous. But on one wall, okay, on the other end, you've got, you've got um, that, that famous photograph of Ike um, talking to the 101st Airborne. Um, earlier on, the, I can't remember if it was the 4th or 5th of June, even 6th of June, but anyway, just before they're all heading off to D-Day. Um, and then on the other wall, you've got um, a kind of reproduction of Eisenhower's map um, uh, with, um, that was, I think, at Suffolk House. And it's just, it's just completely brilliant. It's incredible. We, we were joking earlier that it looks like a war plan with Legos, so that, that they're moving <laughs> tiny ships across yeah. the water. And yeah, just to, to think of the, the massive size of the operation, and this is the way they were doing it. Um, and, the, and the New Orleans conference that they have every year, I mean, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? Because it's this sort of amazing sort of confluence of, of, of historians. And what I've liked about it over the last few years is you've sort of become kind of pals of people, and yeah. you kind of yeah. see old friends and chew the cards and have chats like this, and it's kind of, it's really nice, isn't it? Yeah, and there's a whole group of people, 500-some people, that pay their own money and use their own discretionary time to come here and hear yep. about World War II and... They're enthusiastic and delightful, and uh, yeah, it's a great event. And the fact that it's in New Orleans is not too bad. But just, just, but I, I want to talk about. Uh, I thought it'd be fun to talk about. You've written about sort of Paris and the liberation of Paris in, in August 1944. But before we do that, I mean, just, a, just a little bit more about about Carlisle and, and the Army War College. I mean, you know, so, so being director of war studies. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, what are you what are you doing every day? Well, I think what it means is they want. Uh, it means two things. It means being able to be a sort of outreach face. For the college, we're in a small town in Pennsylvania. We're near a lot of big American centers, but we're not in any of them. So we, there is a tendency for the place to be a bit isolated. And my job is to come to things like this, make sure that I'm I'm following what the latest trends are in scholarship. Even things like I went to an artificial intelligence seminar wow. at Carnegie Mellon University to try to figure out: Are these things we need to bring back to our <clears throat> curriculum? If so, how would it fit with what we're doing? So that, that, that's one end of it. Uh, and another end of it is uh, to keep me out of what we call the tyranny of the schedule, because it is the <laughs> Army. Uh, they, they, any white space, they fill up. So if, if there's a couple of days for sit and think, they'll, they'll put an exercise in there. So my job is to kind of keep me out of that so that I can sort of keep a bird's eye view on where the curriculum is going. And if we want to think about artificial intelligence, who should we be talking to? If we're interested in 
you know, executive education programs because our students are in their mid forties. Uh, who's doing that really, really well? Right. Uh, and then the, my my role, of course, as an historian and, and continuing to do research that, that and writing books and, and writing books and. But but are your stu- your students are U.S. Army officers? Uh, they are two thirds U.S. Army officers. Uh, by law, we also have uh, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, of course. And we have international officers from this year. I think it's eighty-five officers from seventy-eight countries. Really? Yeah. So that's my, amazing. So I think that is a bit the sim, I think that's a similar story at, at Trivenham at the. Um, it's really important. Joint Services Combined Staff College. It's really important. Otherwise, you're just talking with people who share your cultural assumptions and right. you know have your same kind of school solutions. So. Yes, and of course, as we know, that's one of the criticisms that kind of American foreign policy exactly. is, is that there's kind of too much kind of. Our view is the only view. Yeah, and these these folks can really help to do that. So um, we're broken into seminar groups. Uh, this year, um, my seminar group has Mexico, the Republic of Georgia, and the first officer wow. since uh, the Liberian Army had been rebuilt and recreated and professionalized. So, uh, yeah, it's wonderful to get their perspectives, and my job is to figure out where in the curriculum do we want to teach history? Right. What do we want to teach them? Um they don't need to know, you know, pat and turn left instead of right. But right. obviously, there are things that we think students need to know. Yep. And how do we regularize that into a curriculum? So that's really what my job is is at the at the. Wow, well, I mean, it, it does sound interesting. I've got to say, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, yeah, you it's, enjoy it. I enjoy. It. There are days where you sort of wake up and you think, okay, how do I not screw it up today? Right, I've got the right, right okay. students and I've got the right resources. Okay. Um, how do I not make a make a what would you guys say a dog's breakfast of right. this? I mean, how do I? How do I ensure that I'm doing it the way that I want to do it? But we've got plenty of help. and uh, You don't feel swamped by red tape and bureaucracy and It's reports. the Army, so there's always red tape. <laughs> right. Travel especially. But uh, the Army War College, uh, although it's connected to the U.S. Army, is a reasonably small place. We have 380, 390 students. So it's small enough that I can walk into someone's office and just say, hey, I've got this problem. How do I fix it? What am I doing here? Okay. Uh, so it's part of a gigantic bureaucracy, but because we're in this small town in Pennsylvania, you sort of it's bit out on a limb as well. Fix. Yeah. And does and does it give you an opportunity to kind of sort of meet the great and the good and and the kind of the you know the you know crystals and and, and matices and of, of this world? You know the leading yeah. military figures in the U.S. Armed Forces. They do all come through um, when they give their their talks to the students. They will normally say, "This is Chatham House rule. You know, we just keep this between us." Right. Uh, but very often they'll um, you know General Mattis pulled a few of us aside and said, I'm going to be over at the bar. I'm going to get a drink. Come on over. Keep it, oh, off. Wow. Keep it off social media. I'm but, such, I'm, I'm, but what I'm, do you want to know? Ever uh, since it, that, that email he sent about kind of the importance of reading history yeah. uh, went viral. Uh, I mean, yeah. I've just been such a fan of his. I mean, he's, I think he's, he's a, an amazing guy. You know, he's the, the definition of charisma. He's a person that when Is he walks he? into a room, you, you, you certainly look, know it. Yeah. Um, and and he's the one that everybody's eyes are kind of focused on and yeah. it's a gift I mean it, it yes. really is a gift and you can agree or disagree with some of the things that, that he advocates but of course but he's a but big man he has that ability to hold a room in a way yeah. without it seems to me without trying I'm sure it's a practice skill too uh, but we do get four stars who come through the occasional senator the occasional right. um, and sometimes but it must be so fascinating to meet these people because they have, they have they're have they always going to have perspectives they're always yeah. going to have things and, and you know I kind of find as a historian you know what you're always wanting to do is constantly be thinking constantly sort of challenging yourself challenging your own assumptions and your own views and, and, and that's what makes it exciting isn't it that it, should, that, I mean, that we, it doesn't we, stand still we really do early in the curriculum try to put them through a, um, a battery of materials and curriculum to try to get them to say, okay, you're 45, this is normally the time in your life when your opinions begin to narrow and solidify, right. but the job you're doing, that's not acceptable. So right. what intellectual skills do you need to open your mind a little bit more? And, and 
I really love that about the way that we, we do that. We try to teach people where their cognitive biases are just so mm. they know them. Well, um, how do you correct for them? How do you, how do you make sure that you're going for the answer that will work rather than the one that will intellectually be comfortable to you? Yeah, that's and that's difficult people our age, um, you know, middle-aged 45, 50. Um, I find it getting harder for me. So sometimes I'll go back and reread those, those materials right. and say, okay, I have to think of it this way. I can't think of it that way. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the idea is at the end of the 11-month program that they come out with um, a better set of skills for, for the senior jobs they're going to do in the U.S. military. They're not going to go back to whatever tactical command they've done. They're now going to be on that road to brigadier general or senior colonel, and they're going to be in a job that requires a very different set of skills. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Um, anyway, to Paris and the liberation in 1944, because um, obviously I've been doing all this work on, on Normandy, and uh, I kind of sort of didn't really bother with it. I, you know, my book got so big, I kind of I sort of ended with the with the Falaise Gap and the closing mm-hmm. of that, and I didn't kind of really go on to on to Paris. But it is a, it is a, such an interesting period, isn't it? Because I think there is this assumption that you know Normandy ends, and you know the, there's this sort of huge surge of the Allies, and the next minute you know they're all kind of sort of hurtling into Paris. But actually, it wasn't champagning, quite, yeah, right, on uh, the all that stuff. But but actually, it wasn't like that, and there was quite a sort of hard fought battle wasn't there and there was this yeah. whole sort of uh, question mark over, over uh, Joltitz and whether he was going to destroy Paris as ordered by Hitler uh, and there was a lot of fighting I mean there was a lot of fighting between the resistance and German mm-hmm. troops in there wasn't there? Yeah absolutely there's a, there's a competition uh, really I would say once the Falaise pocket is closed so before that there's a lot of organization there's a lot of preparation people are trying to hoard food and ammunition and weapons and all of that kind of stuff but uh, you know, quite realistically, there's no point in rising up against the Germans unless you can believe that an American or French division will be somewhat nearby. These people aren't afraid to die. They're not afraid to put themselves in harm's way. But like most people, they don't want to do it for no reason. Yes. So there's a sort of biding of time as they're waiting to see what's going to happen. And it's part of what worries the Americans because most of the hardcore resistance cells in the city are communist. They're, right. they're people that have been thinking about this for many, many years. And yes. there's a sort of fear that you might end up liberating the city only to have the communists take it over. Then what do you do? Do you really yes. want to send the American army in to clear out Paris? The simple answer is no. Hmm. Um, and they did plan for what they called AMGOT, for a, a full occupation of France. Yeah, um, um, if, um, if it came Allied to military it. government of occupation, occupied territories. Uh, absolutely. You know, it so, is an occupied territory. I mean, that, that is an amazingly, I mean, for de Gaulle, that is just, just anathema to, to him. You, I mean, you, you know, imagine it's like looking a slap right? in his yeah. face. He could have lit his cigarettes right on his forehead. Yes. Um, you know, what he wants is to make sure that it's perfectly clear that when he gets to France, that he is in command of the country, that, yes. that officials are responding to him, that he can reestablish courts, he can reestablish, yep. he can do all of that, and therefore the Americans don't need to be a part of this. Yes. And I think that's what Eisenhower wanted too. Eisenhower, yep. just as in North well, Africa. Well, he wants a smooth transition. He wants, a tra- he wants to move east, just as in North Africa. He doesn't want to deal with the politics of Algiers. He wants right. to move on to Tunisia. And actually, you don't really want to have the hassle of running Amgol, which is a Absolutely huge drain not. on resources anyway. And something the army's just not prepared for. So the no. army's not, they're not. They don't know how to do this. So. But the stumbling block on this is Roosevelt, who who thinks, you know, hang on a minute, this guy's a cocky, arrogant little shit. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, he's, yeah. he's insufferable. Um, he's got sort of really kind of, you know, he's right wing. Um, he feels, to Roosevelt, he feels a bit dictatorial yeah. in kind of stance, outlook, tone. And he does have this plan, doesn't he? Which is, you know, that when the when the CFLN, the, the uh, um, Committee of French National Liberation, which is de Gaulle's Mm-hmm. political bit of it um, you know when they go in that you know if they were given the kind of the, the, the rights to be the provisional government that they're going to 
be dictatorial. Right. They're going to be a one-party state. That they're not going right. to kind of you know sanction democratic elections and all the rest of it. But I always kind of my, my view on it is I think Roosevelt was. I mean, I think Roosevelt is amazing, but I think he was a bit harsh on on him. You know, yeah. just because De Gaulle's a pain in the ass doesn't mean to say he's not the right man for the right. job. So the issue for for Roosevelt, I think, is you have the collapse of the Third Republic in 1940. One yeah. option is you could go back and say, look, the Third Republic never really did legally collapse. Vichy was yeah. illegitimate. Yes. So you're going to go back to the Third Republic. Well, nobody in France wants that. The Third Republic had been discredited long yes. before yeah, 1940. Yeah, yeah. You could yes, say... Yes, because the 1930s, this is a period of coalition governments with kind of sort of 12 parties in the coalition. And in fact, when France Hopeless. falls, the vast majority of Frenchmen say, well, it's not the army that beat us, it was the politicians right. that, that beat us. So yeah. you're not going to go back to the Third Republic. Another option that Americans are considering quite late in the game, Admiral Leahy, quite late in the game, says, well, look, just take Pétain out of Vichy, make him the figurehead, and we'll just keep going the way we're going. Yeah. In other words, a, a kind of Vichy light. Um, get rid of Pierre Laval, get rid of Darlan, yeah. get rid of the real nasty guys that are in there, but kind of leave it the way that it is. So De Gaulle is this kind of third option. Um, Roosevelt's preferred option is to get early elections in. Yes. And when the French people have spoken, then we'll deal with them as a head of state. Right. And the Americans go through this guy, Henri Giraud, that turns out to be mm -hmm. a disaster. Yeah. Um, so Roosevelt's opinion is uh, we can recognize De Gaulle as a military leader in France. Yes. But that's basically what he is. He's a brigadier general. That's yeah. all he is. Yes. And there's this wonderful anecdote. Uh, in uh, July 1944, De Gaulle came to the United States. And gave to Franklin Roosevelt a, a model of the, I think it was the Jean Bart, one of the French battleships that the Americans had agreed to refurbish and, and get back into the water for the French Navy. So he gives them this, this thing, and, and as soon as de Gaulle leaves, FDR says, well, we're going to give this to my grandson. And Eleanor Roosevelt says, you can't, that, that's a gift from a chief of state, you don't give it to a, a kid. And Roosevelt is supposed to have shot back, he's not a chief of state, he's the president of some committee. You know, he, he doesn't get to that level, it. right? Yeah. He's, not a, he's not a head of state yet. And to, to Gaulle, I mean, I've often said this. If I were French, I would want de Gaulle's name on every street in the country in 1944. If I'm American, I understand why people wanted yep. him thrown in jail. I mean, he, he had a, a really difficult way of, of, of not compromising on issues. Yeah, and he, got, he, he no was power terribly to touchy, gone in half about the smallest slights and the smallest things, yeah. um, doesn't help himself at all, doesn't win friends, but he has this vision and he has this determination yeah. and, and he has that charisma, which I think is really, really admirable and is absolutely right for this kind of rehabilitation of France. And he does rehabilitate France afterwards. I think also what's really interesting is that, you know, you, you, you have the, 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 the council, um, the National Council of, of the Resistance, the CNR, which is formed at the end of May um, 1943. And this is the sort of great work of Jean Moulin. Exactly. Who has who is left wing, but has realised that actually De Gaulle is the figurehead under which all resistance should should form. And of course, the problem you have in the early years is there's no hope, yeah. uh, and you know most, and also the the privations of occupation haven't really kicked in in kind of 1940, 1941. It's only until sort of 1942, 43 that you, the true horrors of being occupied by the Germans and the Vichy government really yeah. come home to roost. So, so that is when you know people are only going to put their necks on the line if exactly. if, if there is. What they've already got is so intolerable, there is no alternative. And there is some hope. There has to be some hope. There has to be, hope. be some sense so, that somebody's coming to help you. But, but, but Moulin recognises that, that resistance needs to be attempted to be unified. And this is what the CNR does. And what's interesting, although it is under the directive of de Gaulle to, to create this national body of, of, of resistance and that sort of, you know, and, and the kind of outlawed political parties in France. 
across the board, from communists to right-wingers to all the rest of it, to centrists. Then they splinter again, uh, and particularly following the, the, the death of Mulan in, in early July 1943. So by the 19th, spring of 1944, when you've also got this sort of rising conflict between the resistance and the Maquisard against the milice, you know, this paramilitary mm-hmm. organisation by Joseph Dunn and stuff, you've also got this kind of really interesting period where they do their kind of programme for action that they announce, which is total odds to what de Gaulle is saying. Right. And suddenly you've got this freeway battle because the Allies have no interest in, in harnessing the resistance at all unless it is 100% on their terms. Right. They don't want a communist resistance. They don't want an FTP, the, the, the real left wing. They, they don't want those guys running yeah. around. What they want, and I think what Jean Moulin was working to, was, was a, 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 a kind of thinking two steps ahead. What, what will this look like at the end of the war? Yes. What will the political system look like? So Jean Moulin working with Charles de Gaulle and later Henri Rotangui, who's the great FTP head in Paris, what, what they're saying is, look, yes, step one is let's kill the Germans and get them out of here. Yeah. Step two is open, fair, and free elections, and whoever wins it, we respect it. We'll, 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 End we'll, of we'll, corruption. We'll, we'll figure the system out, but yep. we're not going back to the Third Republic. Yep. Uh, we're going to build a system whereby the politics can work a little bit better. Now, those of you that know French history know they don't quite get that right in the Fourth Republic, and right. de Gaulle doesn't want to be a part of it because... The parliament he feels is too strong, and they're yeah. going to have to go and do this again in the Fifth Republic in, in 1958. But the, the, the notion that those three men had was, we're not going to let this go into civil war. We're, we're, going to, yep. we're going to get rid of Vichy, we're going to settle matters here inside France legally, and then we're going to rewrite this constitution. So if, if that deal holds, you're fine. Yeah. Right. If, on the other hand, the Soviet Union is able to play a card or the American occupation is too heavy-handed... Then you have a problem, and the Americans are really, really worried about this. If we yep. come in, either we're seen as too heavy-handed or just another occupier, or de Gaulle is seen as just another foreign-backed ruler, we face that problem. Yeah, and, and, and when you're not born there and brought up there, you don't have that cultural insight, particularly in a world where, you know, yeah. it is a media world, but it's not the world, media world that it is as we know it today. So you just don't have those insights in a way. But I, what I find just so fascinating is you, you've got these three strands in the spring of 1944 as, as we're building up towards D-Day. You've got the resistance movement over in France with the kind of FFI that's mm-hmm. been formed, the, you know, the French forces of the interior. You've still got the CNR, you've got COMAC as well, mm-hmm. which is this other force, this sort of, um, the sort of military bit of the CNR under which is the FFI. So it gets quite complicated. It's really complicated. But, but what you've got, of course, those guys are all living it. They're there in yeah. France. They can see what the Malice are doing and the 200,000 occupation troops. They can see the kind of sort of, you know, the brutality of the occupation. They've also got this sort of passionate, kind of romantic vision of the future that it's going to be democracy and all the rest of it and, and, and no corruption. De Gaulle, who is still with the CFLN, is still in Algiers. That's where his headquarters is after, you know... Which is France to them. Which is France to them. But he's away from that. So he can look at this a little bit more dispassionately. He's still very passionate, but there is greater amounts of dispassion there. He has that political view that Giraud never had, that Laval never had. Yes, and he has a pragmatism, right? Yep, exactly. And I think the other thing that um, is is really critical in the way that these resistance guys are thinking is, to their mind, yes, the Milice is a problem, yes, the Germans are the problem, but the core problem are the collaborationists who have used the Germans to grab power for themselves. Right. The Germans will eventually go home. Yes. The Milice will fade into the background or will make it so that they keep their mouths shut forever. Yes. Uh, but the people you're going to have to deal with are going to be the Catholic Church, the industrialists, yes, the, the people who are not yes. going to go away. 
And how do you want to deal with that? Right. Um, and that's where de Gaulle comes in and says, look, the, the, the shaving of the women's heads, the extra legal execution on the streets, we're putting a stop to that. There's going to be a, a, yeah. a state-based judicial process for this. Right. Uh, but that's the real question. I mean, it's it's your neighbor, right? It's the guy who lived yeah. in the apartment next to you yes. that you know was giving the names of French resistance people to the Germans or selling out the Jews in the next building yeah. so he could take their apartment. I mean, those people aren't going anywhere. What are you going to do with them at the end of the war? Yes. That's the really big question. Hello, it's James Holland here. While I've got your attention... I hope you won't mind me mentioning a book I wrote called Normandy 44, D-Day and the Battle for France. You may have heard me mention this before, but I hate to say it, Christmas is getting nearer. And if you're thinking of what to buy for those with an interest in history, and especially those fascinated, as Al and I are, by the Second World War, well, perhaps this might be something to consider. I mean, I don't want to appear pushy or anything. This is just a mention, nothing more. I think there's something for everyone in it. Bags of human drama. Plenty of easy-to-follow analysis, a bit of myth-busting, pictures, maps, and I hope all put together in a way that makes for a fascinating and fast-paced read. That's the aim, at any rate. And should this be a book that is stirring interest, then it's very easy to buy. From Waterstones, Amazon, or any bookshop throughout our great land. Thank you, and Happy Christmas. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh. How so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. On one hand, you've got resistance who are there living and breathing it in the spring of 1944 before D-Day happens. You uh, and Dragoon and all the rest of it, mm. the liberation of Paris. So their, their, their vision is much more sort of... Um, it's much more sort of romantic in it's a way. But, but, um, but it's also much more kind of sort of... Um, it's much more localised, yeah. And they don't have Where, whereas de Gaulle is kind of sort of... He's, he's distanced from it a bit because he's, he's in Algiers. Vision, right? and, and, and he's going, actually, the most important thing is we just have a smooth transition of power. He's much more pragmatic. Yeah. Then you've got the Allies who are just ruthless. And yeah, okay, we're very happy to use resistance, but we're only going to help the guys that are going to help us. Right. You know, so blocking forces um, right. from Limoges or kind of east, you know, in Brittany, that would be great. And we'll get lots of people to kind of say that the resistance don't run amok. Everyone else, we're just going to kind of throw to the walls. Right. And 
Uh, and you know, I found this diary of this right. guy. He was in the Mackie Circuit, which was in kind of eastern part of Normandy. Absolutely abandoned. I mean, totally abandoned. Every day expecting arms drops that never come. Yeah. And that's because the last thing the Allies want is lots of sort of, you know, ill-trained resistance types kind of wandering around with Sten guns. I mean, I mean it's, it's not a bad rule in life. Don't give heavy weapons to people you don't know. I mean, it's not a bad rule in life. No, no, no. You can so, really understand like, it. But, but, you, but at the end of it, when you get, when it comes to Paris, what that means is, is you know, sort of Bradley and Eisenhower, you know, Paris is not the kind of sort of, you know, the last thing I want to do is get sucked into Absolutely. kind of a, a, a big battle in a major city. You know, they've got the plan is to bypass it, troops isn't it? that I've been training for amphibious landing, I'm not going to put them into an urban environment like that. Right. And, and, and expect for the best. Um, but, but the resistance in Paris don't know that. Do they, they don't know that. I mean, I, I, my guess is some of them with military backgrounds like Henri Rolletangui have probably figured that out. What they're really afraid of is that the German response to that will be an aerial bombardment of the city. Just kill everything that's in the city, no matter who it is, and don't worry yeah. about it. Uh, there's a, certainly a fear of that because that's the only thing the Germans really can do. What, what saves Paris, in effect, in part, is that the Germans have already begun to think of Paris as a kind of wheelhouse, a kind of roundhouse, right. to get all those troops at Morten and, and west of Paris to get them safely through to the east. Right. That, that's, that's the goal of Paris. Right. Uh, but the resistance folks, I mean, you, you can read. I mean, they know what happened in Warsaw. They know, they know that the Germans and, and, and even, even liberating forces could very well find themselves trapped in a battle that will destroy major parts of this city. Yeah. And they're not worried about the Eiffel Tower as much as they are food and, and right. you know, where right. are we going to live and what are we yep. going to, you know. So those are very real concerns. And I think part of the elation that you see from Parisians in their face is it's not just, yeah, the Germans are gone, but we escaped this without the fate of Warsaw, without the fate of uh, Caen, without the fate of Lisieux, right. without the fate of Saint-Lô. I mean, yeah. we, we, we made it out. Um, and then, you know, there is the question of what these resistance folks are going to do. Some of them, of course, just go into the background, but a, a number of them go and join de Gaulle's forces. They form battalions. They join the Free French. They yes. march to Strasbourg. Yep. They go into Germany. They accept the military discipline, you know, uh, in part, I think, because they're desperate to play a role in erasing that national humiliation and yes. that personal humiliation yeah, yeah, that yeah. they felt for so long. And and. So it's you know it's, it's so nuanced, isn't it? It's so hard. It, it is you know it's a cheap line, but it is the best of times and the worst of times. I yeah. mean, it is it is the absolute depths of France, and then it is this this effort by by Frenchmen to say what what can I do? How can I erase this? And I think your earlier point is exactly right. In August 1941, it doesn't let's say May 1941, even when the Soviets and Germans are still allies, it makes no sense to begin a major uprising. It, it just doesn't make sense. August 44? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the kind of, you know, the, the people who sort of swell to resistance ranks get criticized for being the kind of resistance of the month of September. Yeah. Or the the of but I was kind of, you know, my yeah. view on that, that, that's a little bit harsh, because actually yeah. the most dangerous time to be a resistance um, was was in the summer of 1944. I mean, right. you know, you look at thinking about Tula and Vercor and Orador right. and all those sort of appalling atrocities that happen and the kinds of absolutely brutal battles that are taking place. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a dangerous old business being a resistance. Very guy. dangerous, and it's dangerous in Paris, isn't it? In, in those, those days of the third week of, of August, absolutely. I mean, in the urban the killed. urban and rural systems are completely different. I mean, the way you have yeah. to think about resistance, the way you have to think about protecting yourself and your equipment. Um, in, in a certain way, cities are easier. This city is easier because so many of the FTP guys had worked in the underground. They'd worked right. in the metro. So they, they knew that world. They, they right. knew they could cut power. They knew they could cut te telephone communications. They knew how to do that. Uh, in other ways, I mean, it's absolutely terrifying. Every yes. face you pass could potentially turn you in. And men like Pierre Brossolette, who is, yes. who is turned in and 
um, throws himself out of a third-story window on the Avenue Foch so he doesn't give anything away under torture. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's an unimaginable uh, thing to try to, to try to get your head around and to think of, of you know, maybe this bit of my Francophilia coming through, but a country that did nothing to start this war, yep. right? I mean, they're, yep. they're in the war because an enemy nation invades you. You can talk about right. the Treaty of Versailles and whatever else. Uh, but not a country that was seeking war, yep. and now here you are enduring this, and you're enduring starvation conditions and all of this. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is this is one of the sort of the huge errors that the the, the Germans make, of course, is is that they are like kids in sweet shops, and you know, yep. all these occupied territories. They, you know, I mean, France goes from being the most automotive society in Europe by a country mile on yeah. the 1st of January 1940 to having 8% of the vehicles in, in France that it has yeah. at the end of the year. You know, so that's a 92% drop and that's because the Germans have nicked them all. Right. They've stolen or taken them. And, 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 you know, it's at every level. And at first they're told, and they do, when they first go in, you're going to pay for everything, you're going to tip heavily, yep. you're going to open doors for ladies, you know. Okay, that's fine until 1942. The Americans and British have invaded North Africa. Now we have to in- occupy yep. all of Vichy. We're going to requisition food. We're going to requisition labor. We're going to requisition... Then it starts to get, okay, this is, this is not as pleasant an occupation as we intend. It's certainly not Warsaw. It's certainly not Ukraine. Yep. Um, but you can't sustain that, you know, I'll, I'll sure. overpay. It just doesn't work. Uh, and you've also got this problem that the Germans are so short of workers and laborers mm-hmm. so they then stop pushing Vichy into kind of, you know, first of all, the relief scheme. They end up arresting uh, uh, young uh, men in the movie STO, theaters, right? The STO. They, they end up, you know, hey, you're in the movie theater, you look pretty healthy, you know, and they end up arresting these guys. Yeah, you taking them to, you, you to chewed, Germany. You chewed gum or whatever, and they arrest them, and then the punishment is they go to a, a labor camp in Germany. They go to a factory in Germany. And uh, that's, of course, another reason why why the sort of the Maquis uh, mm-hmm. suddenly enlarges, because, you know, if you're, if you're 20 years old, you can either do your service de travail obligatoire, uh, you know, the yeah. Obligatory uh, compulsory work service in Germany, where you know you're going to be shat on and, and treated like dirt and underfed and worked to the grave, um, or you can run to the hills and become an outlaw. Yeah, and you know, really, that is the choice. And yep. and you know, you're thinking, well, it's 1943. You know, Germany's suffering lots of defeats. This can't go on forever. You know, well, you know, right. I'll tell you what. And rather than being on your own, there's a kind of sort of security in numbers. So you, you think, mm-hmm. well, okay, well, we're in numbers now, but that also makes us vulnerable. So therefore, we better arm ourselves and you know, yep. let's do stuff. And you know, you can see how it kind of sort of builds from that. Absolutely, and they're, they're collective decisions. They're sometimes rational, sometimes not rational, but decisions. But um, you know, it's. Um, I, I try really, really, really hard when I'm in a story and not to second guess what people do because right. I've never had to live that. Thank, thank heavens, I've never had to live that, and thank heavens, I never will. But you know, people that are in the occupied zone that have family in the unoccupied zone, you know, sick parents or children or mm. whatever, and you know, everybody's looking for a way to kind of make it through this. Yes. Um, so I, you know, you you have to you have to come up with tremendous respect for men like Jean Moulin who are told know, you're going to blame this German atrocity on these Senegalese troops and Jean Moulin says no I won't it was clearly the Germans who did it I'm yep. not going to blame these these African soldiers then he tries to kill himself you doesn't know, he by cutting he, his neck he takes a, takes a piece of, of glass and tries to you know which is why he's usually photographed with a, with a scarf by the end of the war so mm. that he can't be identified by that scarf uh, these are astonishingly brave people, yes, um, and and well deserving of our admiration. Yeah, no, um, I agree. And it's happening within this giant drama around them. Where the other thing I like to see, you know, we as historians can reconstruct this chronology fairly well. I mean, I really wonder what these poor guys in Vercor, how how clear a picture did they have of Stalingrad, of North Africa? Did they know this was starting to come to an end? And, yeah. and if they didn't, 
you know, more more power to them, more credit to them. Yeah. You know, but I mean, the Vercore operation is 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 extraordinary, isn't it? Because I mean, what are we talking about? End of June, nineteen forty four. Yeah. You know, you've got a pretty large uh, Mackie organisation up there and civilians in this sort of high ground yeah. high in southeast France. And it's to to. ten thousand troops sent to kind of. Yeah. sort them out and this yeah. this battle takes place what is it 340 odd yeah. Makizad killed 120 civilians they're just left there in the roads you know yeah, no I, have a, I have a good French friend of mine who just bought a holiday house down there he's a French wow. officer who bought a place and uh, he said you know every, every place he looked at he would ask you know I want to know what happened during the Vercors uprising and what happened here during the Vercors uprising and of course most of the real estate agents either didn't know or didn't care but he finally found someone who who cared about this and had documented these houses and what had happened in these? Right. And this was this was a Maquis safe house or this was a Malise space or right. you know whatever the case might be and it, it's it's everywhere throughout the region. So you know history and memory is another thing that that is difficult for France. I, I mean I remember I'm doing this book on Vichy France now, so I was googling Vichy because I was going to be in France, and I came across the uh, the Vichy tourism tourism website. And right. So I look at it and it's all you know the beautiful river and the spas yeah. and whatever. And there's a little contact me, so I write a letter in my best French, and I said, I'm really interested in seeing the stuff from the 1940s. And, and I get this letter back, oh, monsieur, there's nothing here from the 1940s. You know, our, our spas are lovely, and the river's lovely. I mean, they just, <laughs> for obvious reasons, they don't want to make this a, a, an attraction the way that Orador is, or yeah. it's not quite the same thing, but the way that Auschwitz is. You know, they don't yeah. want people coming there yeah. um, to see all the evil that, that and all the bad that had happened there. But um, it gets to the questions of French memory. Yeah, those are difficult yeah, yeah, things. Yeah. So, well, unbelievable. I just don't know how how Britain would have coped. I really don't. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, it's 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 this terrible stain, isn't it? And how you coexist with people that you were fighting just a year before. I mean, you have to create these fictions that it really was the Germans and they forced this on us and we didn't mean to do this. It was right, the Germans making right, us do right. it. And you know, politically, it makes a certain level of sense. You know, historically, as any you and I and so many of our colleagues yeah. know. It's complete hogwash. Yeah. You know, but... But, God, fascinating you know. research. So earlier on, you and I were talking about kind of, you know, how one goes about researching and stuff, but I wasn't... You were asking me the questions rather than the other way around. So what? how are you finding out about Vichy? I mean, where, where are the, the... There are French archives, obviously, in Paris. Absolutely. You know, what, what, yeah. what are you doing? Where, where, are you, where are you doing that? Um, so I don't think anybody was hiding these records, but um, they the French archives have, in the past 10, 15 years, moved from these beautiful old pre-revolutionary palaces that don't work as an archive to right. modern-built, brutalist, ugly buildings that work beautifully as an archive. Okay, so great. So where are those now? There's a trade-off. Um, so the, the main one that I've been working in is in a place called La Courneuve, which is in between Charles de Gaulle Airport and Paris on the same RER line. And it's where the uh, foreign ministry papers are. Right. Uh, and, you know, whenever you're dealing with Germany or Italy or France, I mean, you can be pretty well sure that not everything made it into the archive, into the record that should have. Okay, sometimes you can see where those gaps are. Yep. Uh, but most of the foreign ministry papers are there. Uh, there's a collection in the Bibliothèque Nationale, the François Mitterrand Library, of the kind of updates of what the, what the cabinet and what the leadership were being told what yep. was happening. Um, and then I'm just told I'll be back there in March. Uh, a friend of a friend from the museum here, the World War II Museum, I'm sorry, the World War I Museum in Kansas City, uh, there is a collection in the Pierre Fitte, which is another one of these new custom-built things. Uh, where they actually have some of Pétain's personal papers. Wow. So the, the, the French sources I've been working from have been mostly those. 
the British sources, Harold Macmillan, the future mm-hmm. prime minister, was the minister resident in Algeria. Yeah, so he's got lots of stuff, hasn't he? And it's all the Bodleian, and I've been able to look at a lot of that. And um, Robert Murphy and all Robert that. Robert Murphy's papers are at the Army War College, so are That's uh, quite handy. Uh, William Leahy's are there. Bill Donovan, one of the first yes, spies. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Donovan was working with a young. He's British. a rather cool guy. He's a he? really cool guy. He was working with a young. First World War hero. Yeah. Pale blue eyes, dashingly yeah. good looking. Ran for governor. Uh, Outdoorsman. Uh, yeah, told Hitler he was thinking of converting to Judaism just to piss Hitler off. Uh, uh, but he was had we was friends with a British naval officer named Ian Fleming, and they set up a yeah, yeah. they set up a spy network called GoldenEye, and so yes. there's a lot of fun yeah, stuff going on. Yeah. Um, and he was also over in Britain in 1940. As he a, was a personal representative of. of, of of Roosevelt. With a lot know. of speculation that he was going to replace Joseph Kennedy as the ambassador. Yeah, um, well, you know, anyone so, other than him. So that there's no shortage of interesting people, there's no shortage of interesting stuff, and from the American side anyway, the, you know, the collapse of France destroys every single strategic assumption the country had made about its own defense. Yes. So it really is a moment where everybody wakes up and just says, holy blank, what do we do now? Yes. Uh, I mean, everything from, you know, Roosevelt writes a letter to the Attorney General shortly after the fall of France. Mm. And says, hey, I know the Supreme Court six months ago said that um, wiretaps violated Fourth Amendment protections. I don't think they had any military thing in mind when this happened. Go ahead and ignore that. Right? We're, we're just going to do it differently. Yeah. Uh, and all of these, you know, the, the, the conscription, the destroyers for bases agreement, the Two Ocean Navy Act, yeah. are these very fast reactions to what the hell do we do? Not only now that France is gone, but what if the Germans seize the French Navy? A modern, big... Navy. Okay, so where do you sit on the whole kind of Merzel Kabir issue? So, so, so for those who don't know, this is uh, I think it's, a, it's, it's beginning of July, nineteen forty, and uh, a lot of the French fleet is in Merzel Kabir, uh, Kabir near Iran in Algeria, and the British go hand it over, or else we're going to blast you to pieces. And the French just go no. So yeah. the British blossomed to pieces. Yeah. So it certainly uh, created a problem from the American side uh, because Roosevelt has to say, look, Vichy's technically a neutral nation. You Brits can't do that. Secretly, the Americans are saying, great, that's whatever it was, four capital ships that we don't have to worry about being yep. transferred to the Germans. Um, the bigger, longer issue, is, as, as you well know, it makes it really, really hard for the United States to go to Vichy and say, look, we're going to build this Anglo-French-American alliance we're going to liberate you. And they're, you know, the, 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 the Vichy officers in North Africa who say, look, if, if we see Americans, we will welcome them. If we see Brits, we're going to shoot them. So Torch has to be very carefully designed and, yep. and edged. And, um, you know, I think that, that if, correct me if I'm wrong, the admiral who ran that operation thought it was a really stupid idea. The British admiral who ran yeah, it. Yeah, Somerville. Somerville thought this, this had been. Well, it, it, but for, for largely emotional reasons, which is that, that you know, they're colleagues. I mean, they've been allies. They yeah. they all know each other. They've been on exercises together. They're, they're personal friends. And 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 some of it is just sort of going, don't be so stupid. Yeah. You know, just 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 hand over hand over your your ships. You know, just you know. So I think that's the issue. Right? And I so think there's a, there's a huge frustration from some of us. Well, you know, and he and he gives the the order to fire with kind of. A very, very heavy heart, as yeah. you would do. You know, I can't remember how many yeah. people is killed, but it's like thirteen hundred yeah, killed. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of, a lot of French sailors. So there's a there's a French aircraft carrier that's in Martinique. The only French aircraft carrier mm. is in Martinique, and the Americans are really worried about it because it, it could launch an attack on the Panama Canal. It could support operations in Latin America. They don't know what to do with it. Yeah. 
So they, they call these meetings with some Vichy people. They actually go to Martinique to talk to the admiral. And they never say, we'll, we'll, we could mares el Kabir you. But they do say things like, if we can't get this to a satisfactory resolution, we may have to take matters into our own hands. Right. And it's enough to convince the French. They cut this deal where they take the airplanes off the ship and they literally just leave the airplanes on the beach to just rot in the, in the salt and sand. Right. Uh, and then they allow an American admiral to come on and inspect and make sure everything's being done the right way. But they won't let the ship come to the United States. It has to stay under French, right. French command. And the Americans can live with that. But. But, but obviously Martinique is the other side of the Atlantic from, yeah. from, from Europe. But it's you very know, close to the United States. Yes, it is. But 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 Alger, you know, but the, a lone aircraft carrier on its own is yeah. kind of you know how much danger is that going to be? But a, but a, a, a sizable surface fleet in the Mediterranean. Yeah, that's a different kettle of fish. I mean, it's, it's certainly it's you know you, we were talking about this earlier. The tactical, strategic, operational. On the tactical level, it makes a lot of sense. On the operational level, it probably makes a lot of sense. On the strategic, people question marks. You have to yeah, you've got to be worried about what the second, third order effects of that are going to be and how you're going to manage it. Uh, Jean-François Darlan, the head of the Vichy military, was a navy guy. He had built yeah, that fleet. In he the is 30s. Admiral Dom. He's the guy that built that fleet, despite the fact that there was no money in the French budget and the government wanted it going elsewhere. And yep. he is. I mean, people describe him as purple with rage if the British Navy is even mentioned. So, uh, you know, those those are issues. Uh, you know, those are the calls that people like Churchill have to make. And tough decisions. You know, and, that goodness me. He had an American four-star general come to the Army War College, and he said, um, "Big strategic decisions." He said, "Are fifty-five, forty-five ventures always?" Yes. He said, "If, if you get lucky, and you read, and you study, and you listen to the right advice, you might get it to sixty forty. But he said, it's your job to know that if you get it wrong, they're coming for your head. Just just be ready for it. Uh, there is no such thing as a 100% certain strategic decision. They don't exist. Isn't that fascinating? Well, on that note, Mike, brilliant. That's been just so interesting. I mean, you know, we, we, we love this stuff and we can talk about it all day, but we better not. Because that seems to me like the perfect point to end our little chat but thank you so much for coming on and we'll see you um, in Carlisle we'll continue the discussion there yeah you bet that's that'll be great thank you